Welcome to Untold Stories of the Torah, a masterclass in Jewish history, presented by Rabbi Shmuel Aber. Here's the story of Devoira, the fourth judge of the Jewish people and one of the seven recorded prophetesses of the Jewish people. The Mechilta lists Devoira as one of the special people who Moshe Rabbeinu looked into the future and was able to, to see. And a few questions before we start. Number one, who was Devoira and when did she live? Number two, she had to contend with the Canaanites. Weren't they already destroyed during the times of Yeshua? How did they manage to amass such a massive army? Number three, who was Barak? And was he related to Devoira or not? And number four, a very strong question is, why do we sing the song of Devoira in the Haftarah of Pashas Beshalach, the, the week that we speak about the splitting of the sea, why don't we sing the song of David HaMelech instead? In order to understand the story of Devoira, it's very important to take a massive step back. Devoira's story starts a lot before the story of Devoira herself, and it really starts with the Jewish people coming into, into Israel. When the Jewish people entered for the first time, followed by Yeshua, Yeshua sent out a message to all of them, giving them a choice, saying, if you choose to leave the land of Israel and let us rightfully enter the land of Israel, we will not harm you. You can move to wherever you want and you'll be safe. But if you choose to live, then you're forfeited. Your, if you choose to stay, you're forfeited your life. And at that point, we will kill you. That was the official message, and they, they, they heard the message loud and clear. In fact, one of the seven nations left. They did not fight the Jewish people. But 31 kings from the Canaanites chose to stay, and these, these people had, God instructed them to stay. And God instructed the Jewish people to, to, to kill them, to kill these people that stayed in the land and didn't take the warning of Yeshua seriously and leave. Yeshua spent seven years battling them and conquering the 31, the 31 kings. And Moshe warned the Jewish people before he passed away, before Yeshua even went in, he said like this, and I'll quote the actual verse, he said, but if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those, that you, those you let remain of them will be as pricks in your eyes and as thorns in your side, and they will harass you in the land in which you dwell. Moshe warned the Jewish people, make sure that once you give the warning and let them leave, those that stay are annihilated and they're, they're entirely gotten rid of, rid of, they are going to be a massive pain for you if you let them remain in the land. And so Moshe warned the Jewish people, make sure you take care of it. Yeshua warned the people as well. He said, I'll start off the process, but then every person in their selective land needs to take care of it, as we'll mention in a bit. But during the time of Yeshua, out of the many wars that he went to, one of the wars he went to was a king by the name of King Yavin of Chatzor. This King Yavin had gathered a massive army with many other kings. He'd ganged up together. He'd, he lived in a city in the very north of Israel. And he came to Yeshua with a massive army, with a large focus on cavalry, very powerful cavalry and chariots. And he battled against Yeshua in May Merom. And Yeshua, encouraged by Hashem, did a surprise attack against King Yavin, overcame them and killed every single person on the field, the battlefield. And then Yeshua went to the seat of power, Chatzer, where King Yavin had, had, was, was the seat of his power. He conquered the city of, he conquered the capital city of King Yavin. 
Chotzer became a Jewish city. He, he destroyed it. He killed King Yavin. And then Yeshua burnt the entire city to the ground, as Moshe had commanded him to do. So King Yavin, together with, his, with the seed of his power, was burnt to the ground. And the rabbis say, the Radak brings down, that some of the survivors and, and relatives, could have even been distant relatives of King Yavin, managed to escape. But that, that was it. They ran off into the forests and they, 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 were, they, they were done. And Yeshua had officially conquered King Yavin and conquered Chatzah. And it became part of the Naphtali area, part of the Zavulan area in the north of Israel. And then Yeshua encouraged the Jewish people that they should continue fighting. Every tribe should take his selection, whether Naphtali or Zavulan or Yisachar, or in the south, Yehuda and Shimon. They should individually set up militaries and go around and make sure they finish the job, fully conquer the land of Israel. Yehuda and Shimon listened to Yeshua and they did it. They did not stop until the entire south of Israel was entirely conquered by the Jewish people. But in the north of Israel, they were weary. They were done with fighting. And in their mind, their job was almost 99% done. There was no reason to really finish off the, the rest of the job. They had done it. They wanted to, to, to relax under their, under their grapevines and live on their farms and have a wonderful, a wonderful life. They were done with fighting. And so, for the next 150 years, the Canaanites were no, weren't a problem. They, they had literally fallen off the map pretty much. And they were to force to be reckoned with. And even when the enemies of the Jewish people, when the Jewish people sinned, and Hashem sent enemies for the next 165, 66 years, the Jewish people had to contend with external threats, like Moyah, for example, Kusham and all these other types of external threats. But the Canaanites were quiet. And then Shamgar ben, Shamgar ben Anos became the... the, 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 the um, leader of the Jewish people, the judge of the Jewish people, the shepherd of the Jewish people, at the end of the reign of Ehud. And he had a famous story where the, the first time we see the Plishtim on the scene, he killed 600 Plishtim with a saddle spur. Interesting story. He was only a, a, a judge for one year. And then the Jewish people became, or possibly even during his time, the Jewish people had a new person to contend with. It was a king called King Yavin, and after 166 years of a lot of quiet for the Canaanites, literally not hearing anything from them, they had gathered enough of a force that they now decided they want to start terrorizing the Jewish people. Exactly what Moshe had threatened so many years earlier on came out to fruition. It took a long time, but it came 150 years, more than 150 years later, now the Jewish people are, being, are dealing with one of the old enemies, some distant relative descendant of the original King Yavin, he now calls himself King Yavin. He says, my official um, seat of my power is in Chatzah. Of course, Chatzah what, what had been destroyed. But he, you know, he still he lay claim to the original city of, of his heritage. And he said, I, I want to subjugate the Jewish people. The Radak says that some of the family, original family of King Yavin must have escaped into the forest. And they built a city. They were surviving Canaanites, who the Jewish people had let survive. They built a city in the forest with massive fortresses, very well protected, and they called the city Haroshas Hagoyim. And we'll talk about why that name, very strange name, Haroshas Hagoyim. That was the name of a city, a very long name for a city. And the, the, the rabbis explained that the name Yavin, 
King Yavin, it's like Pharaoh Avimelech. It's it's a it's a regnal name, which means that you know a king could have whatever name they have, and then when they're appointed king, they officially get that title, like Pharaoh, for example. The, all those pharaohs had their own names, but once they became king, they became called they became known as Pharaoh at that point. So Yavin was exactly the same thing. It wasn't a real name per se; it was a regnal name. It was a, it was a name of a king. But this man, this man now appointed himself King Yavin of Canaan, and he said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna take back the, the land of Israel." And he gathered a massive force, and under his control, he had a general who was tremendously powerful. And we'll talk about him in the upcoming podcast. But he was a tremendously powerful general by the name of Sisera, and Sisera controlled 900 iron chariots. Chariots in those days were an unstoppable force. And 900 iron chariots were, were a force that the Jewish people couldn't contend with. And they had them stationed in the north of Israel, in Horatius Agoim. And the Jewish people, it was so overwhelming, 900 iron chariots. And as I'm going to mention later on, it was a lot more than just 900 iron chariots. It was a massive army in addition. But the force was so strong, the Jewish people couldn't even imagine, couldn't even attempt going to war against that. And first, let's talk about the city. The city, Horatius Hagoyim. It's a it's a strange it's a strange name. So Rashi says it was called Haroshas Hagoyim because it was well defended. It was a seat of King Yavin's authority and King Yavin's power. And that's the reason why it was called Haroshas Hagoyim. The Mitzuda says Haroshas means craftsman. It was a city packed with different types of craftsmen, and therefore Goyim means nations, nations of the world. Jewish people are a Goya, a nation, and Goyim, a multitude of nations. So many different nations. Remember, there were so many different types of Canaanite nations themselves. They all kind of gathered in the city, Horatius Agoyim, and it's filled with all these different craftsmen and all these different talented men that all lived in the one city. The Rabag says that there were all these different nations that were there, and all these nations gathered together to build this massive, strong, fortified city that could withstand attacks on the Jewish people. And for 20 years, King Yavin and his Famous general Sisera oppressed the Jewish people to such a degree. We see such interesting um, imagery of how the bitter the oppression was. People stopped using the highways in Israel for 20 years. They were so scared to travel on the highways. If someone needed to travel anywhere, they would use side roads and byways. Everyone was too scared to, to travel on the main roads because they were so scared of King Yavin and King, King Sisera's and, and, and General Sisera's army. Additionally, the People moved out of unwalled cities. Unwalled cities for the 20 years that they that they reigned and they, they bitterly oppressed the Jewish people. The Jewish people moved out of unwalled cities because it was too scary. They, there, was no, there was no way of stopping attacks from the iron chariots. And so they moved only into walled cities where they could have some form of protection from the enemy. Additionally, what also made Sisra's uh, persecution quite different than the earlier persecutions. Again, the Jewish people had been living in the land of Israel for over 150 years, was, it says, Medjush Tanchumah says, Sistra talked heresy against Hashem. Later on, he's going to get a big punishment for that, but it changed the dynamics a little bit. When the earlier people had, had oppressed the Jewish people, their heresy part, they hated Jews. But they didn't. They, they were scared of God. They realized that Hashem was a force to be reckoned with. In the case of Sisra, though, he hated Hashem and he talked heresy against Hashem, and it, it, it made the persecution against the Jewish people a lot worse because it, it was it was so much more personal. They were even though they were rebelling against Hashem at that time, they weren't following in the ways of Hashem. This was a person who were who was going against the Jewish against the Jewish people and going against the God of the Jewish people. 
it, it became a lot more a lot more bitter of a persecution. The Malbim points out that when it finally says, after 20 years of persecution, the Jewish people realize maybe it's time to call out, to cry out to God. And that was going to be inspired by Devarim, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But when it finally was time for the Jewish people to cry out to Hashem, it says, Ve'yitz'aku, and they cried out. But it uses a tzaddik, a much more intense um, phraseology for crying out. But when in the story of the earlier judges, Osniel and Ehad, when it talks about the Jewish people crying out to God, it says, Ve'yitz'aku. And they cried out with a Zion, much more mellow form of crying out. And obviously, the rabbis want to know, well, well what's, why was it much worse? We already explained a little bit of it. I'll just go through it. Number one, Sisra's army was an army that they never contended against odds so poorly in their favor. An army of 900 iron chariots. And, and as we're going to mention, it was a lot larger than just 900 iron chariots. There was no natural way for the Jewish people to, to win. So when they cried out, they weren't crying out in a rate. They, they couldn't see any way out of this hopeless situation. Additionally, as we just mentioned a moment ago, from Medrash Tanchuma, sisters spoke out against Hashem. And so the, when they cried out towards Hashem, it was, a lot, it was a, with a lot more pain. And additionally, the persecution by the, in, it, of, the, of King Yovin of Canaan had gone for 20 years. It was a very, very long time. And so when the Jewish people finally cried out to Hashem, there was so much pain because they'd been suffering for 20 years already under King Yovin. At that time was the hero of our story, Devoyah. Devoyah was a prophetess. She was an incredibly great scholar in Torah. And she was the fourth judge. She came from the tribe of Naphtali which was, as we mentioned earlier on, the very, very north of Israel proper. So if you have the, you know, the, the map of Israel as we have it today, it'd be the very north of Israel, above what people call the West Bank. And she, she came from the tribe of Natali. She was exceptionally wealthy. We already mentioned in the story of Yoina that all prophets were very wealthy. But she, we actually have really interesting descriptions. The Targum brings down where her investments were. She invested in many different locations in Israel, many different commodities. The Targum says she owned date trees in Yericho and vineyards in Ramah, olive trees in Beiskel, and white soil in Harifrim. Rashi says the white soil this is really interesting. Rashi says the white soil, soil, in Rashi's opinion, says, I believe that it was used for ceramics. That's what the white soil was used for. But she had investments in all these different places. But one of the places you could see is she, she had vineyards in Ramah. That's going to become important soon. She had a husband. And her husband's name, and we'll start off with this, and of course it's going to be a, a lot more of a conversation, but her husband in the verse, it says, her husband's name was Lapidois, which literally means flames. And the, the Tana de brings down a really, a really, really interesting section. Tana de dedicates two large sections to the story of Devaya, which is really interesting. And Tana de says like this, any person can achieve greatness no matter who they are or what station they were born in, la- in life. And Tana de Belio says, you want to know proof of this? Look at the story of Devoira. Devoira lived while Pinchas was still alive. It's a tremendous detail that people don't talk about. Elio Anavi teaches us this, but most people don't think about this. Devoira lived at the same time as Pinchas. Pinchas was the son of Elazar the high priest, Pinchas was a high priest too, and his grandfather, Pinchas's grandfather, was Aaron, his great uncle was Moshe Rabbeinu, Pinchas was alive during the times of the giving of the Torah, Pinchas was one of the greatest Jews alive in history, full stop, and yet, the hero of our story, and the leader of the Jewish people of her time, was Devorah, and Tandreel says, any person, if they want to achieve greatness, they could do it no matter who they are, look at the story of Devorah, 
And Antonin Veliot tells us what her origin, how, how she achieved such greatness. She saw that her husband, and Antonin Veliot says that Barak was her husband. And again, later on we'll talk about, it's a bit of a discussion whether Barak was actually her husband. But most people seem to, seem to gravitate towards the fact that Barak was her husband. And that's the general flow of the story. We're going we're gonna to follow that. And Antonin Veliot, which is a madras written by Elio and Navi, says the same thing. Barak, her husband, was unlearned. And she wanted him to be counted among the righteous men and earn a portion in the world to come. So she tried to think, well, how can I do this? And she could She was. She was a very. She was a very wise woman. She realized that coming strong. This is how I understand it. Coming strong wouldn't be effective. But she said, you know what? Let me let him earn a portion in the world to come. She made wicks for the Mishkan. The Mishkan existed at that time. The Jewish people didn't have the base of Migdash just yet. There were no kings of the Jewish people just yet. But the Mishkan existed. And so people would travel to the Mishkan. She made wicks for the Mishkan, and she would send her husband to bring it to for the menorah to, to light to light in the in the, the to light um, flames in the in the in the Mishkan. And she hoped that in that merit he will at least get a portion in the world to come. She was very wise, says Tanvelio, and she made the wicks very thick in order that the menorah would be very bright. And Hashem who could see, who could read into the hearts of and the kidneys of people, said, the voyeur wants to add to my light, I will therefore add unto her light in Yisrael, Yehud, and the twelve tribes. And it was in this merit that the voyeur achieved such incredible greatness. In fact, we're going to mention later on, the, the Abarbanel says, the whole reason she became a prophetess was in the merit of this, of this, this type of behavior. The fact that she had this incredible alacrity and this incredible wisdom and this incredible um, ability to, to bring out the best in her husband, but also to send um, gifts to Hashem in the Mishkan. But not just to give regular gifts, to make thick, thick wicks. She could have just brought regular wicks. It wasn't good enough. It needs to be the best. And about the voyeur, says Tana de Velio, and a woman that is similar to her, it's written, it's written in Kehelis, the wisest of women build, that build her house. Really interesting, about a month and a half before Chof um, Zayin Adar, the Rebbe's, the Rebbe's, the Lubavitch Rebbe's had a stroke on Chof Zayin Adar in 1992, about a month and a half before, the Rebbe gave a really interesting speech, and in the speech, the Rebbe mentioned the voyeur, and the Rebbe said that the voyeur made wicks for the Mishkan. And from the Mishkan, the entire world was lit up. And the Rebbe said that every house is a Mishkan too. And, we, and, the, and the woman of the house, like the Vera, has the ability to light Shabbos candles and Yom Tov candles. And when they do that, they light the house. And from the house, that light shines out throughout the world. And later on, we're going to talk about the quality of modesty that the Vera had. The, the, the Rebbe says the same, the same thing as well. The Vera had this incredible quality of modesty, of, of Tzniyas. And that was part of her praise. And these two qualities created such redemption for the Jewish people. And the Rebbe says the same thing today. In the merit of women lighting Shabbos candles and Yom Tov candles and keeping modesty, the laws of modesty, keep it sneers, and women following in the footsteps of Devarah, they're able to cause such incredible peace in the world. And the Rebbe says the greatest form of peace that we're looking for, that's in the power of women to achieve, is the coming of Mashiach. Beautiful lesson. Now the Mitzudos doesn't say that when it says, Aishas Lapidos, which we have translated until now as being the wife of Lapidos. Devera was the wife of Lapidos. Her husband's name was Lapidos and Barak. Both of us, he had the two names. The, the, the Matsuda says, no, that's not, that's, not, that's, not, that's not it. When we say she's the wife of Lapidos, it's not actually talking about her husband. We're actually talking about Devera herself. Her fiery behavior, her alacrity, her zrizos, was was so commendable that she's called the wife of Lapidos, meaning that, She's a wife who has fiery behavior in her. 
It's not her husband. We're talking, we're talking about her. And the Abarbanos says it's actually in the merit of her fire-like alacrity that she became the judge of the Jewish people and she became a prophet of the Jewish people. The Ben, the ben Ishchai, the Ben Yayada, in the Ben Yayada, he writes like this, he says, Eishas Lapidus is like Eishas Chayon. When we call a woman a Vala, Eishas Chayon literally means a wife of a Chayon, someone that's married to a soldier. But that's not what Eishas Chayon means. Everyone understands it means a woman who's val- who has Vala, who's, who's the, the Chayon, the soldier-like behavior is talking about the woman. So the Ben Ishchai says the same thing over here. When we call it Aishas Lapidois, we're saying that her husband's name wasn't Lapidois. Her husband's name was Barak. She had a fire-like um, behavior, and that's what we're talking about. Now, the verse says that Devoya sat, used to sit under a palm tree of Devoya, and where it was located between Rama and Bezkel, two cities, which we mentioned earlier on, in the hill, count, in the hill country of Ephraim, which is central Israel. Later on, Shmuel Hanavi famously was going to live in the same area. And the Jewish people would come to her for judgment. And uh, the Yalkut Shemani says, Devoya would actually be out there in public, and she would give speeches. Like, a, like any um, chief leader of the Jewish people, all the, the leaders we've had who were Torah leaders as well, and they would give speeches in Torah, Devoya would give massive Torah speeches to, the, to people, teaching people Torah and, and, and teaching people how to follow Torah correctly. Now, the Abarban, what's interesting is before we talk about why Devoya judged under a palm tree, people come to her for litigation, people come to her for, to know what Torah says, who's right and who's wrong. People had arguments and they would come to Devoya because they wanted to know what does Torah have to say. But first, why was it called the palm tree of Devoya? Now, the simple explanation is it was her palm tree. She was a very wealthy woman. She owned palm trees. And so it's called the palm tree of Devoya. But the Abarban actually brings down we have earlier on another woman whose name was Devoira. Devoira, the nurse of Rivka. And when Rivka wanted Yaakov to come back, Yaakov had run away from his brother Esau, he'd gone to love on him, Padam Aram, and she, she had promised her son, I will send, I will send for you to, to bring you back. When 20 years were up, and Yaakov now is coming back to visit his mother with a massive family, Rivka kept her word, and she sent her nurse, Devoya, as like an escort to bring Yaakov back home. Unfortunately, along the way, Devoya passed away. And so Yaakov buried her, and Yaakov eulogized, and Yaakov cried for her, and she was buried under a tree. And so many, many years later, Devoya wanted a place to, to teach the Jewish people. She wanted a public place, as we'll talk about in a moment. And so she said, you know what, this is a very auspicious, a very appropriate place for me to, to bring so much holiness to the Jewish people, to guide them and to educate them and to litigate for them and to, to teach them Torah. And so she chose a special tree to make as her tree that she taught the Jewish people underneath of, which is very, very interesting. And, and, and she was located in Harafrayim, which is literally central, central Israel, pretty much in the middle. Now, the question, of course, is, why did she judge under a palm tree? Why didn't she judge in, indoors? All judges, all, all uh, Jewish leaders, no one goes outdoors. It sounds really nice and, and wonderful, but we, we don't hear of leaders doing, holding court outdoors. Generally speaking, when leaders taught and, 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 and litigated for the Jewish people, they would go indoors. They'd be in, a, they'd be in an actual study hall. So the Gemara and Megillah says, because of tzmiyos, because of modesty, she didn't want to be enclosed in a room with men, and so therefore she, she would hold court outdoors. 
And the Ben Ishchai says she was exceptionally uh, modest. And even though when there's two men, the law is that if there's one woman and one man, they can't enclose themselves in a room because of, because of the laws of modesty. But if there's two men and one woman, each man is going to be paying attention to the other person. So nothing, we don't worry about something inappropriate happening. But she nonetheless, even though technically, and whenever there's, a, whenever there's a court case, by definition, it means there's two litigants, which means technically, according to the, the, the law, she could have easily gone indoors and it would have been perfectly fine because each one of those people would have been in the room, just two litigants, it's herself, even if there's no one else in the room, there's no, there's no problem of yichud, there's no problem of her secluding herself because there's two men. But nonetheless, she, would, she went beyond the letter of the law and she made sure that she was always outdoors anyway. She, she was always outdoors anyway. Now, just one really interesting twist, which is a little complicated, but it's just really fascinating. There's a rule like this, that if one of the men is, it has a, reputa- a reputation for being promiscu- promiscuous, in that case, the law is two men cannot be with one woman. If a woman knows that a particular man is a, a promiscuous man, he's, he's not a well-behaving individual. In that case, she can't say, oh, well, there's two people. One of them is promiscuous. Then now it's fine. In that case, actually, she can't be enclosed in a room. Even with 10 promiscuous men, we don't say, oh, you know, we, we could be now trust the situation because there's more men involved because they're promiscuous. We don't know. But in, so the question is, people that are coming for litigation to... To ask Devora, well, a really bad situation happened. Tell us how to tell us how to deal with it. In this case, they're coming to her because they're obviously not upstanding individuals. They're not very elevated. So, in that case, maybe it wasn't. It was within. You know, she of course had to keep the the. the she wasn't going beyond the letter of the law. She had to be indoors. So, just a, a, a quick answer, but it's really beautiful. Is that the Ben Shai says. Devorah inspired the people of her time that they were so elevated that there weren't promiscuous people at her time. Every litigant that came, whatever reason they had, it wasn't because they were on a low level. They were like a date palm tree. This is what the what the Medrash compares them to. A date palm tree, that, oh, date palm tree, unlike other trees that has all these branches and offshoots, a date palm tree is just one offshoot, one heart. Everything is all together. The Jewish people at her time were all, she inspired them to all be elevated and only dedicated to the Father in heaven towards Hashem. In that case, there was no reason for her to be outdoors. She could have been indoors because two men would have, would have been fine. But in that case, she decided to go beyond the letter, letter of the law. The Bible says that, that, again, fully halakhically permissible for two men and one woman to be in a room together. But she wanted to remove herself from doubtful situations and potentially bad rumors. She didn't want to put herself in a in precarious situation where people could start to make rumors. She said, the best thing for me to do is just be outdoors. The Marvin says that she used a palm tree because there's very little sh- shade. And also, a palm tree also shows us that at that time there were very few scholars. The, one of the reasons why people came to Devaria, they traveled across the country. Devaria didn't go traveling around. People came to her. She was in the central Israel, but at the same time, people came to her. The reason they came to her is because at that time there weren't many terrorist scholars, which is, shows you, you know, the tragic uh, state of affairs at that time. The Devoira became the leader of the Jewish people. And the 20 years after all of this oppression, Devoira began inspiring the Jewish people to return to Hashem. 
And the Malbim says there's four different things that she did. Firstly, she inspired them to cry out to Hashem. As we mentioned earlier on, they cried out with a tzaddik, by they cried out to Hashem. And also the merit of the verse, she was a Navi and the earlier judges of the Jewish people, not necessarily were they prophets, but Devoyer was an actual prophet, and in her merit, it created an incredible, um, um, you know, um, advocacy and, and, and merit to the Jewish people. And also her behavior of, of alacrity, that she didn't just send wicks to the, to the Mishkan. She, didn't, she made sure they were thick wicks, they were, they were beautiful wicks. This created incredible merit for the Jewish people. After 20 years of oppression, it was now time for them to get redeemed. Additionally, her effort to judge the Jewish people brought a lot of merit to the Jewish people and also the merit of the Jewish people. The Jewish people gathered together and they, they united themselves and dedicated themselves to God in her time, like a date tree, like we just mentioned. And because of the, all of these four combined things, the Jewish people were now um, elevated and deserving to have a tremendous miracle. Additionally, there's two other things that, 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 the, that uh, the rabbis mentioned. The Zoya talks about the fact that at that time, the Jewish people, they didn't do the mitzvah of circumcision correctly, bris milah. In the, in the commandment of circumcision, there's two parts. There's the outer skin and there's the inner skin. In the times of the Devarah, for some reason, there was a weakness in the, in the commandment of circumcision. And they only did the outer, they only, um, they only cut the outer um, skin of the circumcision. And she told them they have to do it properly and they have to also cut the membrane underneath. They have to do the, the circumcision correctly. And she inspired them to do the mitzvah properly. I'm assuming that brought a lot of, a lot of merit to them. And also Tanad Veliel says that the voyeur actually saw, at that time she saw the merit that the Jewish people were going to be saved. The merit of the fact that they woke up early and left late from the shuls and the study halls and that they learned Torah every day continuously, that was an incredible merit for them and that was actually the, like the, the deciding factor that enabled them to have one of the greatest miracles during the times of the judges was this tremendous battle we're going to talk about. It happened in the merit of the Jewish people coming early to shul and leaving late from shul in the study halls. So now the Jewish people are ready for a miracle. So Devorah calls for Barak. And I'll read the verse first and then I'll explain who Barak was. Devorah sent for Barak ben Avinoyam, who lived in the city of Kedesh in Naphtali. Kedesh Naphtali, which is right up the very, very north of Israel. And she told him like this. She said like this. Hasn't Hashem, the God of Israel, commanded? This is a quote from the actual Pasuk itself, from the verse itself. It said, Hasn't Hashem, the God of Israel, commanded, Go and draw to Mount Tavar, and take with you 10,000 men of the children of Naphtali and the children of Zavulun? And then continues Devoyer in the name of Hashem. And I will draw to you in the river of Kishon Sisra, the captain of Yavin's army with his chariots and his multitudes, and I will deliver him into your hand. This is a, this is a, a prophecy that Devoyer says to Barak, telling him, prepare 10,000 men from these two tribes, the north of Israel, who these two tribes are the ones that really have to contend with, with, the, with King Yavin and Sisra. They're, they're, you know, they're the... The seed of their, of this of Canaan and this massive city, Croatia Sagaim, is literally right in their area. So these two tribes have to gather ten thousand men, and Barak's the one that has to gather them. In fact, because Sisra was so terrifying, Devarius said, "You don't collect them. Collecting wouldn't have worked. Collecting is when you have people that you know are ready to come, and you just say, okay, now time to come.'" Devarius understood, instructed Barak, "You're going to have to convince them.'" They, this is essentially a suicide mission. They're going to be making themselves as a, as a, 
a, a bright flashing red light towards Sisera and, and Yavin and, and they've been terrorizing the Jewish people for 20 years the 10,000 men ready for battle is going to be is going to be an instant war and convincing people to join such a battle is going to be it's going to be impossible so Devoria tells um, Barak the new general of the Jewish people convince them draw them you're going to have to really really convince them and Tanad Veliel says, why Naphtali and why Zavul? Why were these two tribes um, the ones that were chosen? I mean, obviously, in addition to the fact that this is literally the, within their land, this is the biggest problem is towards them. But additionally, they had a very special merit. Naphtali, the actual son of Yaakov, he was the one who served Yaakov. I don't know what that fully means, but that's what Tanad Veliel says. He brought a great satisfaction came from Naphtali because he personally would serve Yaakov. And Zavulan would famously serve Yisachar. Zavulan and Yisachar had this tremendous relationship and this t- tremendous arrangement where Zavulan were businessmen and they would work very hard to, to make a lot, as much money as they could. And Yisachar would sit, the entire tribe would sit and learn Torah the whole day. They didn't work. And how would they live? How, how did they not die? Because Zavulan would provide for them. The tribe of Zavulan would take their money, a big, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming a, a tremendous amount of money, and they would give it to Yisachar and say, you continue sitting and learning, we'll continue doing work, and we had they had this arrangement among um, uh, with, with with each other. So because both of these people, Naphtali, the original um, starter of the tribe, the son of Yaakov, served his father, who was a famous Torah scholar, and Zavulan, as a tribe, served the tribe of Yisachar, enabling them to serve to learn Torah. That was the reason why the they, these two tribes were chosen to be to have the ten thousand men coming from them that were going to be the start of the battle against Sisera and against King Yavin. Now, what does it mean, hasn't Hashem commanded you? It's very strange for his theology because it's like, it's, it's a very starting a conversation with Barak and saying, hasn't Hashem commanded, the conversation just started. Well, what do you mean, hasn't Hashem already commanded you? So there's, there's two general, general opinions. Rashi says that when, when Devar is telling Barak, hasn't Hashem already commanded you, she's not talking about her own prophecy. She's talking, hasn't Hashem already commanded you in the Torah? Like we spoke about in the introduction of this very class, Moshe warned the Jewish people that after the Jewish people begin the war against the Canaanites that remain, they have to completely destroy them and do not leave anyone behind. So, Devar is saying, Jewish people for 166 years haven't followed this instruction. Hashem has already instructed you to go to, to, to go get rid of the Canaanites. Now they're here and they're creating, now they've declared war against, against us. Just as Moshe predicted that would happen, you have to completely destroy them, as Moshe had instructed from the very beginning. The Radak and the Metsudas, though, say that hasn't Hashem already commanded you is, is, is Devoria saying her prophecy. And it could be that there was more there was more to the prophecy itself, and the part that we have is just from, you know, from this part. Has Hashem, the God of Israel, commanded? That's the part of the prophecy we have. So even though it is a little bit strange of the phraseology, the Radak and the Matsudas David say, no, this is, this is a prophecy of Devoya. She, she was a prophet, and one of her prophecies was this famous prophecy telling Barak, go take 10,000 men, draw them, and convince them to come and join you on the top of the mountain, which of course is going to be the massive instigation of a tremendous, tremendous war. Now, who was Barak? There are two b- basic opinions when it comes to who Barak was. According to one opinion, Barak was the wife of Devarah. Lapidus, we mentioned earlier on, Lapidus had many names. One name was Lapidus, one name was Barak. In fact, Michal was also another name of 
Barak and Lapidus, a tremendous man. And it could be based on Tanvelio that after his wife, you know, convinced him he would, he didn't know how he didn't know how to learn Torah, but after his wife convinced him to go to the Mishkan and bring the wicks, he worked on himself and he, he became a tremendously great man, a person who, who accomplished prophecy, who managed to achieve prophecy as well, a person who was an incredible great scholar, an incredible warrior and, and, and a, a tremendous, tremendous person. But it could have been that he wasn't always that way. And he, he started off as a very simple man. And through the inspiration and the guidance of his wife, he became a really, really great man. Why was he called Barak? His face was so shiny, it resembled lightning. Barak literally means lightning. Lapidus also means uh, flames. He had the, it, it, it's synonymous with each other. He was, he was a, a fiery person. Why did, she have to, why did she have to summon him? We'll give this two opinions. I'll just explain one of them now. Just as Barak served the, the elders, the rabbis, the great sages during the time of Yahushua, Barak had obviously lived a very long life, he continued to serve the, the, the sages, the elders of the Jewish people after the passing. So she had this message from Hashem, she had to summon him. Usually husbands and wives are always in the same place. He was going, he was, uh, his wife was leading the Jewish people and, and she was a judge of the Jewish people. And Barak was going off and, and, and assisting the, the elders. Now God comes to, to Devarah, Hashem has a message with Devarah, so she quickly summons her husband and says, I have an important message for you from Hashem. That's one way of looking at it. And Tanit and many other, many of the rabbis and mo- most people, as, as I've seen it, follow this, that Barak was the wife of Devarah. But there is another opinion that says Barak ben Avinoyam was not related to Devarah at all. He was a tremendously great man who lived in the very, very north of Israel. Devarah held court in the central Israel. And she has this message from Hashem that Barak is going to be the great next leader of the Jewish people. So she sends a message, Barak, come here, I have a message from Hashem. No relation to Devarah. And she lived, he lived in an entirely different location as, as Devarah. He was chosen because of his incredible righteousness and he was supposed to be the next leader of the generation. And this was going to be the, the, like the, the starting of his career. Now, there, is, there are opinions that a very interesting situation happened. And why did, Barak, why, why did Devarah summon Barak? Because they were married. This is obviously based on the first opinion that they were married. And she summoned them because they had separated. It's unprecedented aside for Moshe that such a thing would ever happen. But the, there are opinions that they actually, the Radak and the Rabag and the Chidom mentioned this, that they, they separated. Once she became a judge of the Jewish people or whether she separated because of having prophecy and she always wanted to remain on a high level of, of, of prophecy and high level, which is unprecedented. All prophets were married. Moshe was married, Moshe did separate, but Devarah was the other exception. Aside from Moshe and Devarah, all other prophets were married, but Devarah chose to separate. So now that she has a message for her husband, they didn't live together, she had to send a message for Barak to come, because he was living up in the north of Israel, in, in, his, in his city, while she was in the central of Israel, judging the Jewish people. She tells him the, the message, and Barak tells Devarah like this, he says, I'm going to quote the verse. He says, if you, if you will go with me, then I will go. Dvarah had sent Barak to go to war. Barak said, I don't want to go by myself. I want you to join. If you will go with me, then I will go, he says. And if you will not go with me, I will not go. And it's very important to realize, and it's very, very clear from the context of as the story continues, it wasn't a lack of faith. It wasn't like he was saying, I'm not going to do this. He couldn't, he couldn't, um, he couldn't argue with Devarah, I'm not going to, 
He was just trying to convince Dovari to come along. He didn't doubt that what Dovari was saying was truthful because that would have actually been an actual sin in the Torah. Barak was an incredibly righteous man. He couldn't have gone against a prophet. If a prophet says something, no matter how outrageous, so long as she's as a prophet, whether he or she doesn't say something against idol worship or saying permanently going against the law in the Torah, other than that, you need to listen to a prophet whatever they say, whatever prophecy they say. He wasn't denying that. But he was telling, he was telling, Devorah, I need you to come with me. Don't just send me by myself. Join us in the battle. He wasn't doubting her because that would have been an Avera. It's very important to, to kind of lay that groundwork first. Now, why did Barak want, he had instructions. God wanted him to go to war. Why did he want Devorah to come along? What, what was going on? The Rabbug says that Barak wanted the merit of Devarah. Devarah was such an incredibly special person, so righteous and so so perfect, and she, he wanted as much success for his soldiers now that he's about to lead them into battle. And so he says, "Come with us. We need your we need your merits." The Abarbanel says that Barak was very worried. He's now going to go to 10,000 people in the tribes of Naphtali and Zivulun and tell them, these are the people that are persecuted the worst, by the way, from, king, from Sisera and from King Yavin, and tell them that there's been a prophecy from Hashem and that you need to come join me, 10,000 men. We're going to go to the top of the mountaintop to get as much attention from Sisera and we're going to instigate a massive war. It's going to have a very hard time convincing people. But the Barak said, everyone knows who you are. They know that you're a real prophet. If you're going to come join me, well, then it's, it's going to make my job of convincing everyone a lot easier. In fact, the Rana points out when Devorah came, Devorah didn't go down the mountain to the wall. She, she stayed there. The Barak never wanted her to join the actual battle itself. Barak wanted her to come along. So when he tells people, God said that you should join the battle, that I need 10,000 men, they'll see Devorah hanging out with him and they'll say, oh, this is real. A real prophet has, has, has a message from God. The Malbum says that once he heard that this is going to be a miraculous war, and I'm assuming he understood straight away that this would be a miraculous war because there was no natural order of things that the Jewish people with 10,000 men could win such a war, and even with any men. The Jewish people just didn't have a force. Um, King Yavin and Sishra's force was so large, as we're going to explain in the next podcast. It, it, it had to be a miraculous war. He started doubting. He was a very great man, but he started doubting if he had enough merit for the miracle. And so therefore he tells Devorah, come with me. I need your merit to kind of, to kind of help my merits so that we could actually have this miraculous war be affected. The Medrash, Medrash Rabbah, says that Barak told Devorah, if you come with me to Kedesh to help me build the national confidence, then I will give you a share in the glory. In the next battle, because um, Barak already understood straight away, there's going to be two battles. There's going to be the battle with Sister, with the actual de- general, but that's just going to be a very hard initial battle. There's going to be the second battle with the king, with King Yavin, actually dealing with the remainder of Canaan, and it's going to be two separate battles. The harder battle would be getting people to be convinced to come to the first battle. That would be the hardest part, and Barak understood that. So Barashas Rabbah, Based on Chadusha Radal, the way the Radal explains Barisha Shaba, Barak told the Vayar, listen, I need you to help build national confidence that people are going to join the original war. I'm willing to share the glory with you, but you deserve it because you're coming to the first war. But I'll, if you come to the first war, I'll make a deal with you. You'll be able to get the credit for the second war. I won't need you. If we win the first war, I won't need you for the second. The Jewish people are all going to rally behind me. At that point, it's just going to be smooth sailing from that point. We're facing King Yavin and Chatzar. It's not going to be a hard battle. It's, it's Sisera is going to be the hard battle. 
At that point, I won't really need you for national confidence anymore. But if you join me now, I'll let you have the glory of the national confidence that will happen afterwards. Now, the voyeur wasn't happy with Barak's answer. The voyeur, it, it, it sounds from the, from the verse, but even from, the, from the, the criticism that Barak gets, it sounds that the, Barak shouldn't have requested the voyeur to join the war. He, he should have just taken her, her instruction from Hashem and straight away gone and done what she, had, what she had said and convinced people to join the battle. So the voyeur says, I will go with you. If you want me, I'll go with you. But the journey that, I, that, that you will take will not be for your honor. For Hashem will sell sister into the hands of a woman. Devariah tells, tells Barak, you made a mistake by trying to convince me to go to, go to war. And the Barmanah says that, really interesting, that now that Barak has been appointed as the leader of the Jewish people in charge of the army, everyone has to listen to him. That includes Devariah. Yes, she's a prophet. She said a prophecy. Now Barak needs to, needs to bring the Jewish people to war. He is the top authority. If he says she's coming to battle... She has to come. She doesn't want to. So she says, I'm going to give you a good reason why, why I shouldn't be coming. This, this is not a good idea. This is going to, it's going to downplay your own glory and your own victory in the battle. Don't bring me. Just trust in Hashem. You'll be fine without me. Her job was to give advice. And so the Barmanah says, and this is with all advisors to kings. Their job is to give advice, not just to say what the king wants. But if the king insists nonetheless that this has to happen, okay, now you need to listen. So she had, she warns Barak, don't let me come. Let me stay here. You don't need me, and you get, all the glory is going to be taken away from you. But if you insist that I come, I will come because I have to listen to you. The rabbis criticized Barak for requesting the to, to to join the war. Barak was supposed to be the leader, was supposed to be the judge of the Jewish people, and that this was the start of his career. And as soon, straight away, at the very beginning of his career, when he insisted that the Devarah join him in the war, Hashem said, you want to, be, you want to have Devarah come along? You want to be second to her? Okay, no problem. She'll, she'll be the leader of the generation, and you'll be second to her. The rabbis point out, it's very similar to Avram and Sarai. When they were going to Mitzrayim, Avraham made a whole ploy of brother and sister, and because he, because he did the whole ploy and made, made himself second to Sarah, whatever that means, but as the Medrash explains, he became wealthy in her merit. When Pari then gave all this wealth to Avram, it was not in Avraham's merit, as it was supposed to be, it was in Sarah's, Sarah's merit. Additionally, in the song of victory later on, it was supposed to be that Barak was going to be the first person mentioned in the song, and then Devaya, but because he insisted that she come to battle, he made himself second to her, and so Hashem said, okay, no problem, so you're second to her, that's the way it's going to be. And so even in the actual, the, the, the victory song, Devoria's name is mentioned first and then it's Barak's name. Now, when Devoria says that the credit of the war will be given to a woman, who does Devoria mean? Now, of course, we're going to have a lot more of the story to discuss, but the Radak says that Devoria's talking about herself. That if I come with you, the glory is going to be brought, is going to be given to me because I'm coming along with you. That Barbanel says that Devoyer was prophesizing. She wasn't saying a reality. She was prophesizing. She was saying, if I come with you, it's, good, it's going to affect that a, another woman, Yael, who we'll talk about soon or in next podcast, that Yael will finish off the war and thereby, thereby get the credit and the victory. She was prophesizing for the future that in the future event after this war, the credit of this war is not going to be given to you. There are Bag, the Matsudas, and the, ba the Malbim say, no. When, when Devoira was saying that the credit will be given to a woman instead of Barak because he's, he's insisted that Devoira join in the war, 
it was talking about both of them, both the Voyer and Yael, two women that were on both sides at the beginning of the war and the end of the war, they are both going to be the ones that get the credit. The Matsuda says that when a general brings an army to war, there's two claims of glory that the general could get. Number one is leading the war unafraid, starting it off and just make it, being the one to make it happen. And the second claim to glory that he could have is the finishing final blow of the war, finishing and getting the job done and winning the war. Those are the two claims to glory. Devoria told Barak that if you bring me along, you're going to lose both of these claims to glory. You're going to lose, firstly, that you're going unafraid, leading the war unafraid. Well, I'm joining you. And number two, finishing off the job because you're asking me to come along, which is not a good thing to do, then Hashem's going to punish you or Hashem's going to make you lose the opportunity to be the one to actually do the finishing blow. Barak was supposed to be the one to do the final blow and or the final blow of winning the war. And because he had the warrior come along, he lost that opportunity and it was given to Ya'el instead. Barak calls the tribes of Zavulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. 10,000 men follow after him. And together with the Voyer, they went up to the top of, of, of Har Tavar, the, the, the mountain. They went up to the top of the mountain, which is a very, very tall mountain. It's, it's 1,800 um, feet above sea level. So it's, it's, it's very, very large. It's a very beautiful, round-looking mountain. It's, it's, it's fascinating to look at. And 10,000 soldiers at the, top, at the top of the mountain now spreads, spreads the woods extremely quickly across the north of Israel that there's this Jewish general leading an army and of course King Yavin and Sisera the general have to meet this challenge they can't just let you know a challenge be unmet and even though it was barely a challenge at all King Yavin and Sisera's forces were so largely overwhelming the 10,000 men of of Naphtali and Zavulun was Zavulun and Naphtali nonetheless they had to meet they had to meet them in battle. This was this was a threat, and now they they claim to be in charge of the land of Israel now. And King Yavin had to contend with this with this threat, and that's what we'll continue with in the second podcast. Thank you for listening to Untold Stories of the Torah. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this channel and leaving us a review.